Good morning, folks. Good to have you in the audience. We're thankful to, to be here this morning to send, spend a few moments in prayer. I caught Tim last week as he was bringing a morning prayer, and he noticed, made comment that how, uh, how much he's looking forward to seeing the people in the pews or in our chairs, and likewise, we've been separated for such a long time. So let's spend a few moments together in prayer, if you will, please. Lord, we come to you this day seeking the very leading of your Holy Spirit. As we attempt to really create a real sense of church in these rather strange times we find ourselves in. Our sincere prayer is that our hearts will be softened through your still small voice as you guide our church leaders and our congregation in being your servants. We pray for spiritual wisdom to face the challenges that will come as we begin the reopening process for our church in the days ahead. The times we are in need a special dispensation of your spiritual leading, of your grace, and of your mercy, so that the steps that we take will be in step with what you desire for your church. We need only to look to the Spirit-inspired words of James when he said to us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We certainly ask for wisdom, Lord, in these strange and challenging days and times. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom. Lord, may we seek your wisdom and guidance and live in a manner that is pleasing in your sight. And as we move ahead with the restarting of the various ministries of United Baptist Church, may your leaders seek your wisdom, your understanding, and always your patience. Lord, we also ask for your spirit of grace as we move forward in serving you. In recent weeks, we have been challenged as we have been exposed to the many lessons you have taught us through your parables that Pastor Scott has brought to us. And this week, we'll be challenged again by the lessons of life found in the life of the Good Samaritan. And one of the questions that was asked, how do we seek eternal life? Jesus asked some questions. And when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, the man of the law said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor. We are encouraged, Lord, to live our lives as Luke reminds us as he asks the thought-provoking question, who is my neighbor? Our prayer this morning is that we, as believers, will display brotherly love to one another, that we will display patience and understanding as we continue to maneuver through this pandemic. Lord, bless this assembly this morning. May your word reach through our very hearts. We give you praise and thanks as we come to you in the name of Christ. In the name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bob, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Few stories scripture are more well-known than the one before us today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can find it in Luke's Gospel in the 10th chapter, beginning in the 25th verse, and if you haven't had occasion yet this morning to read that scripture, I would encourage you to hit the pause button and find your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. Jesus told this parable in response to a question that was asked of him by an expert in the law. This man was a theologian, 
Gettysburg translation may even say that he was a lawyer. He asked Jesus a question, Luke tells us, in order to test him. And he asked, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you have been raised on, taught the gospel, hope you have, then this question might raise a red flag for you. We know that salvation is by grace, through faith, and it is itself the free gift of God. Why would any New Testament reader wonder about how to earn eternal life? It can't be earned. It is given. And here it is, this man of the law, this expert in the law. How can I earn eternal life? How or why would anyone do anything to earn a gift? It wouldn't be a gift then, would it? It would be a payment. Jesus, in fine teaching fashion, responds to a question with a question. He asks the man, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, what do you think, and what is your understanding? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And that's very good. That comes straight out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. And he adds to it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That also, very good. That comes right out of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 8. Turns out this man really is an expert in the law. He does know his Bible. And he sums up the law of God beautifully. In fact, he does it the same way that Jesus will do it when he is asked at some point, what is the greatest commandment? You can read about that in Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus says the same thing. You've got to love God with everything you have. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said to this man who answered wisely, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, again, for us, a red flag should go up here because it seems like maybe Jesus is opening the door to a salvation by works. If you do these two things, you'll have eternal life. All one has to do is love God perfectly and love one's neighbor as oneself. To have everlasting life. Well, listen to that if you're worried about it. All one has to do is love God perfectly and love one's neighbor as one loves himself. The problem, of course, no one can do that. Everybody fails. So Jesus is not advocating here a salvation by works. He is doing what the law does, which is uh, revealing our weakness, revealing our inability to keep it, pointing us to the need for something greater, for something more. If this expert in the law had been honest, if he had been willing to be vulnerable, he would have said to Jesus, I can't do that. I can't follow the law the way that you're telling me it needs to be followed in order to have eternal life. What, what, what should I do? And that would have given Jesus an opportunity then to share the gospel with this and to teach him the power and importance of grace and faith. But instead, he pushes for a few more details. You see, he still has a hope that maybe he can secure some 
salvation by his own effort or through his own strength. Maybe he could fulfill this law that he has just expounded, that Jesus has just said he got right, if he can narrowly define its terms. So seeking to justify himself, he asks the second question. It's a clarifying question of Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And that's what brings us to the parable. Jesus tells this story to answer that question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, when Jesus says that he was going down, he means quite literally, this man was traveling down. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles, and it descends about 3,300 feet. It was a treacherous trail. It was steep in places. It had little vegetation. It had many uh, rock, rocky outcroppings and crags in which thieves and robbers could hide to wait in ambush. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. It was even known as the path of blood. And this man ventures down this road, this man about whom we know very little actually, we don't know his nationality, we don't know his status, we don't know his occupation, we don't know his reasons for traveling. All these are irrelevant to the story, seemingly unimportant, because we don't have that kind of information. What we know is that on his journey, he fell among robbers, they stripped him, and they beat him, and they left him half. And so far, a couple of verses in, this is a very believable story. Some surmise that this actually happened. That Jesus is referencing something that actually happened. It would have been no surprise to hear of a mugging on the road to Jericho. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. That would have been common as well. Not all the priests lived in Jerusalem. And the fact that this fellow was going down indicates that he is probably leaving the holy city. He has probably completed his rotation of priestly duties in the temple, and he's heading home. We might consider that this is his weekend. This is his time off. If he's like me, he's heading home for his recliner when the work is done. Somewhere along that journey, he comes upon this stripped, beaten, and bloody body of a half-dead man. Well, anyone could help we would think it would be a man of God, right? If anyone would be moved by suffering, we would think it would be a man of God. Right? But Jesus says when he saw him, he passed by the other side. We can only speculate as to why he would do that. Many have, believe me. I've read a lot of commentaries on this, and people are trying to find the reason for a priest doing that, coming up with lots of reasons and lots of excuses and maybe even a justification or two. But in the end, when we speculate, what we're left with is speculation. This speculation might even detract from a truth, I think, that is purposely dark and should be unsettling to those who hear and read of it. The priest, man who represents God to men, men to God, walk around and past fellow humans, obvious. So likewise, Jesus 
as a Levite. The second character coming down the road, he's not a priest, but he is from the priestly tribe. He's a Levite. He is most likely a temple worker himself. And he's supposed to be a man of God. But like his colleague, he takes a wide berth around the suffering of Heart isn't stirred by what he sees. Continues on his way. And the point is, neither the priest nor the Levite showed any mercy whatsoever. Now comes a third character down the road, and with him comes the twist that we have come to expect in many parables. Jesus says, verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, in our day, Samaritan is synonymous with helper. Samaritan's Purse is an international relief program that expends its resources to help those in need around the world. Many hospitals, including the one that we have helped to build in the Dominican Republic, operate under the name Good Samaritan. In our country, all 50 states have on their books some version of what's called a Good Samaritan Law which seeks to hold harmless those who would render aid, which actually is designed to encourage people rendering aid to victims of crimes or accidents. For us, the term Samaritan is complimentary. It is endearing. But it wasn't always that way. Centuries earlier and at various times, some of the Jews intermarried with some of the of Samaria. And these were unlawful intermarriages that resulted in a distinct people such that to the Jesus day they remained in conflict with the Jews. They had their own scriptures. They had a portion of the Old Testament that they believed in but not all of it. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. In fact at one time at least that we know of they, they raided and desecrated the Jewish temple you might recall from John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, that she sought some clarification from our Lord as to where the proper place to worship was. You worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers worship on this other mountain. And John states very plainly in that passage of Scripture that the woman was surprised that Jesus would even ask her for a drink. He says, because everyone knew the Jews had no dealings with us. See, the Samaritans despised the Jews, and the Jews hated them. To a Jewish audience, especially to an expert in the law, every Samaritan was an enemy. And that's what makes the Samaritan's role in this story so shocking. He turns out to be the hero. As he, the Samaritan, journeyed, he came to where this wounded man was, and when he saw him, the scripture says, unlike the priest, Levi. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. When I Samaritan saw passion. He stopped what he was doing in order to help. 
He stooped down into the dirt, into the blood, and cleaned this man up and dressed his wounds using his own oil and his own wine. He gave up his place on his donkey, and he took this man to safety, and he handed him off to another for care, and he opened his purse, and he spent his own money for the care of a stranger. And so Jesus asked, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, a man who fell among them? Although it almost assuredly pained him, and he could not bring himself even to say the words. Expert in the law, nonetheless, the one who showed him. To be neighborly is to show mercy. It's a word in the original language that means goodwill or kindness toward the afflicted, coupled with a desire to help. And that's what love for a neighbor looks like. But that's not exactly what the expert in the law desired. No, is it? He wants to know who are we supposed to be neighborly to? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus answers with this story, a story that says your neighbor is just not the person who lives in proximity to you. It's not the person uh, near your home on your left or on your right that you can borrow a cup of sugar from. Your neighbor is not just your family members or people of your own tribe or even people of your own race. Your neighbor at times, Jesus shows us here, might just be your enemy. And most important, your neighbor is whoever he is. That's who your neighbor is. And that's what this parable teaches us about who our neighbor is. But further, it teaches us this, that if we truly want to love our neighbor as we are commanded in Scripture, love goes beyond a sentimental feeling to a sacrificial action. Love is expressed in commitment. Love is costly. You and I are not called only to have sympathy toward those who are in un unfortunate circumstances, toward those who are in even to feel bad about that, but we are not only to care, we are to do something to meet the needs that we see. It was Martin Luther who said, faith alone justifies, yet faith is never alone. This, I think, is derived some from the book of James, which tells us that faith without works is dead. And then there's a little of First John sprinkled in there, right, that tells us to love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John writes, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The answer is, he doesn't. Faith alone justifies, yet faith is never alone, says Martin Luther. It's never without love. If love is lacking, neither is there faith, but mere hypocrisy. It's interesting to me. I, I hope it's interesting to you, and it's intentional. That Jesus uses the example of religious people walking around interesting because you and I, I think, do it. So we are religious people. 
And so this part of the parable ought to catch our attention because it is entirely possible, somewhat ironic, of course, but entirely possible that religious duty may make us in fact, this may be where we find ourselves in the faith. Because we are, after all, priests of a sort. As Christians, we fulfill a mediating function when we intercede in prayer, when we bring uh, our petitions and the requests of others before God. And with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are indeed every day temple workers. And we certainly represent God, at least if it is known to others that we are Christians have not uh, taken our faith and hidden it under a bushel basket. If people know that we are Christians, then we represent God to them. And some of the conclusions that they're going to draw about our God will be based on exactly what they hear and see coming out of us. So, on the figurative road, we're not walking that literally. We are on the figurative road. We know this as light. It's definitely more full of dangers and, and violence than the 17-mile path of blood. It is strewn with casualties and victims on this road. You and I are traveling every who do we see? And what gets in the way of our When do we stop? And what gets in the way? And how do we stoop to help? Gets in the way. What do we spend? And what gets in the way? Jesus concludes his story with a straight up with a parable. He says, You go and do likewise. Now that you know your neighbor is whoever needs you, now that you have seen what being neighborly looks like Jesus says go and love your neighbor I don't think we can improve on that window Father as we reflect on this as we leave some room for quiet here now for your Holy Spirit We think about its implications for our own busy life. Help us, we pray, to notice who it is that needs our mercy. And give us wisdom in how to show it. Help us, Lord, to recognize our neighbor, even if, or maybe especially if, it's that person that we feel like walking Maybe even if it is our enemy that we find who is hungry. Increasingly help us, Father, to 
doers of your word and not hearers only who delude themselves. Not for the purpose of filing a resume of good works to earn your favor, but living obediently, living in the moment. Minister. Minister you for the good of others. 